stimulate your thought, enhance your physical and mental health, and encourage community. Today we have a very exciting program. We have Dr. Dave Nichols from Purdue University, who is one of the world's foremost authorities on psychedelic research. Following the interview, I'm going to give a report on my recent medical expedition to Havana, Cuba. So stay tuned. For those of you interested in what's going on in Havana, stay tuned after the interview, and I'll give you that report. But now, on to our interview. LSD, lysergic acid diethylamide, was first synthesized on November 16, 1938, by Swiss chemist Albert Hoffman at the Sandoz Laboratories in Basel, Switzerland, as part of a large research program searching for medically useful ergot alkaloid derivatives. LSD's psychedelic properties were discovered five years later when Hoffman himself accidentally ingested an unknown quantity of the chemical. This came to be known as one of the most famous bike rides in all of history because after he ingested, accidentally ingested the LSD, he got on his bicycle to go home. The first intentional ingestion of LSD occurred some years later in 1943 when Hoffman himself ingested 250 micrograms. Yes, micrograms. We're going to find out from Dave Nichols what a microgram is later on. Hoffman ingested 250 micrograms of LSD. He said this would be a threshold dose based on the dosages of other ergot alkaloids. Well, Hoffman found the effects to be much stronger than he anticipated. Sandoz Laboratories introduced LSD as a psychiatric drug later on in 1947. Then, beginning in the 1950s, as some of you know, the United States Central Intelligence Agency began a research program codenamed Project McCultra. Experiments included administering LSD to CIA employees, military personnel, doctors, other government agents, prostitutes, mental ill patients, and members of the general public in order to study their reaction, usually without the subject's knowledge, some believe. In fact, many believe. The project was revealed in the U.S. Congressional Rockefeller Commission report in 1975. In 1963, Sandoz patents expired. Also in 63, the U.S. Food and Drug Administration classified LSD as an investigational new drug, which meant new restrictions on medical and scientific use. Several figures, including Aldous Huxley, Timothy Leary, and others, began to advocate the consumption of LSD. LSD became central to the counterculture of the 1960s. Then, on October 24, 1968, possession of LSD was made illegal in the United States. That's right, made illegal. The last FDA-approved study of LSD in patients ended in 1980, while a study in healthy volunteers was made in the late 80s. So, for the most part, though we'll hear the rest from Dave Nichols, research into LSD has been suppressed in this country. Why is it? Well, by classifying LSD as a Schedule I substance, the DEA, Drug Enforcement Agency, they hold that LSD meets the following three criteria. It is deemed to have a high potential for abuse, it has no legitimate medical use in treatment, and there is a lack 
of accepted safety for its use under medical supervision. And now our guest, Dave Nichols. Dr. Dave Nichols holds the Robert C. and Charlotte P. Anderson Distinguished Chair in Pharmacology at Purdue University College of Pharmacy. He is also a distinguished professor of medicinal chemistry and molecular pharmacology as, and is an adjunct professor of pharmacology and toxicology at the Indiana University School of Medicine. Dave has published nearly 300 scientific articles. I could go on and on. His credentials go on for pages. In fact, when he, when he sent me what he called a brief bio, he said, you really don't want my CV. I guess he figured it would use up all the paper in my, uh, in my uh, printer. But perhaps suffice to say that Dave Nichols is recognized by most scientists as one of, if not the, world's foremost authorities on the chemistry and pharmacology of psychedelics. Welcome to Mind, Body, Health, and Politics, Dave. Good morning. Good morning. Well, you heard me start out here by saying that the, uh, that the DEA holds that LSD meets the criteria for being scheduled, that it's deemed to have a high potential for abuse, has no legitimate medical use and treatment, and there's a lack of accepted safety for its use under medical supervision. What does your research have to say about those uh, three comments by the FDA? Well, to begin with, the, uh, the DEA's definition of high potential for abuse really means that people will take it without a prescription. It doesn't necessarily mean that it has the possibility to get people addicted or dependent or people want to take it repeatedly. It's really a, a definition. You didn't get a prescription for it, and so you're taking it. So it's a non-prescription type of use. The safety issue, lack of uh, safety, uh, LSD has never killed anyone directly uh, from overdose. Uh, it's a fairly benign substance from a physiological point of view. Now, that doesn't mean that it doesn't have psychological problems, but from a physiological point of view, it's, it's pretty safe. And lack of uh, medical use, this is something that was really never documented. It, 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 the research is kind of nipped in the bud. There was a lot of uh, enthusiasm and excitement when LSD sprang on the scene in the early 1950s. And, in fact, it uh, catalyzed a lot of neuroscience research. Um, you know, this, the SSRIs that we use now for treating depression probably wouldn't have arrived as quickly as they did if LSD hadn't been discovered because the profound effects of LSD on the human psyche really was the first point at which uh, neuroscientists realized that there was a connection between brain chemistry and behavior. So prior to that time, uh, if, if, if a child became schizophrenic, uh, it was more, more often than not that they would blame the parents or the mother had not provided a nourishing at atmosphere or the parents had somehow failed or the breastfeeding had failed or whatever, but it was the parents' fault. So you have these people with schizophrenic children feeling like it was their fault because there was no connection between the recognition that brain chemistry had anything to do with behavior. That seems kind of amazing today, but that actually was the situation. It was only after the discovery of LSD's effects in 1943 and then all within a few years the discovery that serotonin was in the brain and then looking at those two structures and realizing, well, LSD actually has the same kind of chemical template as serotonin. Serotonin is in the brain. LSD produces these dramatic behavioral changes, so maybe there is some relationship between 
brain serotonin and behavior. And so there was a lot of research really in the area of serotonin in the brain in the 1950s and into the 60s. So LSD really catalyzed an area of neuroscience research that people generally aren't aware of. So, but with that, all of that enthusiasm and excitement, the studies that were done, they just threw it at about everything they could think of. They tried LSD in almost any imaginable condition, um, autism, alcoholism, um, sexual dysfunction, you, you name it, they, they tried it to see what it could do. It was usually given by uh, therapists who were poorly trained or they were lay therapists or they were self-proclaimed therapists because you could get the drug easily. And uh, a lot of things were done. There were, really were thousands of papers published on the uses of LSD, but they weren't done to a rigorous standard, so we don't really know uh, what could be done. But there certainly were tantalizing hints in a lot of studies where alcoholics were treated with LSD, uh, that it might be useful in treating uh, alcoholism or substance abuse. And one of the most well-documented uh, uses was for treating anxiety and depression in terminal cancer patients who were dying. 60 to 70% got alleviation of symptoms and, in some cases, reduction in need for pain medication. So it really was a situation of not spending quality time, if you will, to do the right kind of research to discover what the uses might be. I think in, under proper uh, circumstances, under medical supervision, the safety of LSD is not really an issue. And there have act there's actually been studies done uh, of the safety of LSD when it was used in a, prop a proper, appropriate medical context. And the incidence of uh, adverse effects there is just very, very small. So what, do you have a, an opinion on what the reason is that uh, the research is still uh, so limited? You know, I mean, serious research by people like yourself at universities? Well, research is driven by funding mechanisms. And uh, for about 20, almost 30 years, I was funded by the National Institute on Drug Abuse to study hallucinogens or psychedelics. And my research is fundamentally focused on how do they work in the brain? How do they produce their effects? And at, when people are using the substance a lot, if there's widespread use in the population, then the National Institute on Drug Abuse, NIDA, says, well, we should throw some money at that. So people are using cocaine, people are using MDMA, people are using new synthetic cannabinoids and spice. So they say, well, we need to look at that. So they put money there. People were not using hallucinogens to that great of an extent. Um, and I think that's part of it. And also... For government agencies, they're driven by in-house sort of programs that they have. So at NIDA, for example, they have programs to study marijuana, cocaine, methamphetamine, all the things that are, are serious problems in their view. And so that's where they put the money. Hallucinogens are not really something they're that concerned with. At the National Institute of Mental Health, they're looking at ways to treat affective disorders, depression, schizophrenia, etc., and so they look at these drugs and they say, well, these don't really tell us anything. That's their view. So there's no priority there. So basically what you don't have is any federal funding agency that says these compounds are now a priority. We should put some money in there and study them. So that's a big part of the problem right there. And prior to really that, which is the situation I think today, uh, once they became controlled substances, and Schedule One especially, you have to have a special license specifically to study that substance and you have to tell exactly how you're going to use it, how much you're going to use, how long you're going to use it, and that all has to be approved by the DEA, and now I believe they even include the FDA in requiring approval. And so that process can take anywhere from six months to two years to get approval. 
and then you have to have a secure place to store it. So even if it's a relatively small amount of LSD, uh, suppose you ordered five milligrams of LSD, which you know that wouldn't be a huge amount to be diverted, which is what the DEA's concern is. But you would still have to have the same kind of storage and safe and safeguards and record keeping that you would have to have uh, if you had much larger amounts. And so for scientists, they go, you know, this is a hassle. I don't want to have to do this. I have to get a special registration. In some cases, I may have to pay a fee. And especially with respect to clinical research, that's a whole other uh, order of magnitude uh, greater regulation than just animal research or, or test tube research. So uh, what you're saying is the, the impediments to doing the research are such that a person has to have a great deal of interest, somehow inherent interest or interest themselves, in order to want to go through the hassle of getting the, uh, the, the protocols accepted. Basically, you would have to have a personal agenda, personal motivation, or some reason to really devote yourself to this kind of activity. And the people who have actually done some of the recent studies, for example, with psilocybin that I'm aware of, um, it's taken them you know, a few years to get to the point where they got all the approvals. And you also have to have approval by the Institutional Review Board, FDA. So there's a whole another level of approvals. So the people that are doing work with those now, and there's you know half a dozen in the world, are people who really believe that these things have some value and they have a sort of personal commitment to, to making it happen. But without that, uh, you, don't really, you don't really see any uh, large-scale movement to study these. In contrast to something like cancer or HIV or, or things like that, where everyone is aware, well, cancer is a big problem, and so some young researcher might have had somebody in his family who's had cancer, and so he or she will say, well, I think I'm going to go into cancer research, or maybe they've had an acquaintance die of HIV AIDS, and they say, oh, that was terrible, I'm going to go into that. You don't have that sort of general... Uh, kind of feeling in the population that, oh, psychedelics, that's really an important field. I think I'll go into that. So it really takes kind of a personal commitment by a few people who I would call visionary uh, to look at this and say, you know, there's, there's something there that's, that's valuable and we need to, to, you know, pick through it and find the little nuggets and find out what they are and, and, and bring them out for medicine. You know, when I went to graduate school, there were some topics that we were told that if you decided you were going to make your career on those topics, they were almost career killers. Oh, yeah. And one of them was hypnosis, for example. I remember talking to Ernest Hilgard of Stanford University, who was a behaviorist and did a lot of uh, rat research for, for years and years until he then eventually, after he became a full professor at Stanford, went into doing his hypnosis research. And he told me directly when I was a young graduate student, he said, I made my career in rats so that I could finally do the hypnosis research because I knew if I went into hypnosis first, I'd never get anywhere. Yeah, yeah. Probably studying uh, psychedelics would be another career killer for most people. And you're saying there's about a half a dozen around the country. That's like Roland Griffiths doing the, the psilocybin research that just got some press at, at uh, Johns Hopkins. And uh, what, Charlie Grobe down at UCLA Harbor Medical in psilocybin? Right. Uh, Steve Ross at New York University, also psilocybin looking at cancer patients. We have another fellow at University of New Mexico that is now looking at psilocybin in, in alcoholism. Who's that? And uh, Franz Wollenbeider in uh, Zurich uh, has a laboratory where he's doing a lot of basic clinical science research uh, looking at that. And all these people actually are involved with the Hefter Research Institute, which is an institute that I founded in 1993 to actually carry out legitimate research with these substances. So what got you into this, and uh, how did you come about to, uh, to, 
dedicate your career to, and, and write 300 articles all in this particular well, area? I mean, how did you have the courage to stick your neck out like this? Well, or my, your career out, I should say. The fellow that I did my postdoc with, uh, Dr. J.P. Long in the medical uh, college at University of Iowa, told me some years after I came to Purdue, he said, Dave, I never thought you'd get funded to study hallucinogens. And I, I don't know whether it was dumb luck, being in the right place at the right time or what, um, but uh, somehow I got funded and I kept doing research that they thought was meaningful. Um, I, I graduated from high school in 1962, and although I grew up just outside Cincinnati, and it was sort of when everything was going crazy out on the West Coast, nothing was really happening in Cincinnati, as you might imagine. As I might imagine. So... And, but I had uh, a number of my uh, classmates went to different universities where uh, LSD was popping up and marijuana was being smoked a lot. And they'd come back and some of them would take LSD and, and have stories about this. And I thought, this is kind of really interesting and read a little bit about it. So I thought, well, that would be an interesting thing to go into because I was in, I'd always been interested in how the brain mind worked. And this seemed like a really interesting subject. And there was a lot of press a lot of books were being written in that whole period of time, 1962 on. Yeah, Summer of Love, I think, was 1967. So I actually went to graduate school in 1969. I started in, in, in the fall of 69 thinking I would work on these. But there was no place that was doing this kind of work. And so I found a fellow at University of Iowa who was working on kind of atropine-related compounds, <clears throat> which are uh, a bit different. But that was as close as I could get to it. So I, I went there to work for him. Once I got there, and I had a fellowship to, uh, I had what's called it was called an NDEA Title IV fellowship. Uh, when I went there to work for Joe Cannon, he said, "When well, I know we've corresponded and you've got the fellowship, etc., but you can work for who, anyone you want to work for. You don't have to work for me. So you should interview the other faculty in the department, and you can work for them if you want to." And so I interviewed a fellow named Charlie Barfneck who was unknown to me who hadn't published in this area, and he happened to have a student who was attempting to make some metabolites of potential metabolites of mescaline. And so in the course of just interviewing uh, Professor Barfnick, and I started talking to him. I realized that I knew a whole lot more about this subject than he did because I'd read pretty much everything that had been published up to that point. And I had a fellowship, and, of course, if you're a professor and a student comes in who has their own money and you don't have to pay, it's a very desirable student to have. So we started talking about different projects, and he quickly realized that I knew the field fairly well. got real excited, I think, because he also knew I had a fellowship. And so I decided to work for him, and uh, he pretty much gave me a free reign to just let my imagination run. And that's pretty much what I did when I was a graduate student, and being involved in that as well as some other projects. So I, it was great fun. But <clears throat> during that period of time, from 69 until I finished in 1973, of course, we had the uh, Controlled Substances Act, and these things all became illegal. So I had, tra I had trained studying the chemistry of these and was looking forward to doing some pharmacological work and really understanding how they worked a little better. I did, In fact, I did a postdoctoral fellowship in pharmacology at, in the College of Medicine in Iowa. And then I finished up, and they're, they're illegal. <clears throat> so Well, there you were. <clears throat> there I was. So I went to Purdue in uh, November of '74. Let me just stop you right there before sure. we go to Purdue. We're going to pick up on your going to Purdue. While you were in graduate school, you were doing research. The research was uh, was still uh, allowed by the government. Tell us some of what you found out during that period. Well, what, and what piqued your interest to continue? The thing that struck me was, um, 
and I'll tell the, I tell the story now. I'll say to people, think of the things that can change your life. Okay, you fall in love, get married, have a child, uh, maybe a parent dies, a sibling dies, or a child dies, or you get a divorce, or you take a dose of LSD, and and suddenly people are kind of caught off guard, and they look at you, LSD. I said, yeah. How how is it possible that this molecule? You can take a tiny amount of this molecule, ingest it. It'll diffuse into your brain, stay three or four hours, diffuse back out of your brain. And for some people, they never see the world that, the same way again. Some people are permanently changed for good or for, for bad, depending. And I said, how is it possible that a molecule can do that? You know, Why should a chemical be able to do that? Just go in your brain, spend a few hours, come back out, and, and you've been changed in some way. For the rest of your life. For the rest of your life in some cases. So that to me was kind of really interesting um, I had been interested in sort of philosophy and, you know, who are we and how did we get here and what is man and this sort of thing. Not real well-formed ideas, but the kind of things you might think about in a philosophy course or something like that. And this occurred to me that, you know, a drug that could do this must be interacting in a very fundamental place in the brain that was important to determining who we are and how we perceive the world around us and how we interact. So it seemed to me like it was a very important area to investigate, to understand how these worked. When I started, though, this was a medicinal chemistry department. So basically what you do there is what you do is develop what are called structure activity series. So you make series of molecules and you look at how active they are, and then you try to deduce something about why one was more active than the other, what structural features did it have. And so by making, it, it would be, I guess, to use a, a sort of crude analogy, you had a lock and you didn't know what the proper key was. And so you would keep making keys and you would find out that, you know, in this in the first position, it'll, it, it'll push one of the tumblers up. So then you keep making more keys and you find out, well, you push two tumblers up with the notch, you know, this notch in the first position and this other notch in the second position. So you'd make lots and lots of these keys, and in some way you would know whether or not a particular part of the key would activate one of the tumblers. And so eventually you would get to the point where you would have this key that would open the lock. So it's, it's sort of the same sort of approach in medicinal chemistry where you make lots of related molecules, you have similar structures, and then you do some kind of a bio, biological assay and determine... Uh, how potent they are with respect to each other, and you look at the most potent ones and the least potent ones, and you say, what do they have in common, and how do they differ? And so this was an indirect way for me to start trying to probe where is the site in the brain where they bind? What is it looking for when it binds these substances? What is it about this particular chemical that, uh, that, that <clears throat> binds, or what, what is it about this chemical, and how does it affect brain chemistry in order to produce this tremendous change that you talked about? Right. So this was just the chemistry part of it. I mean, yes. Then you go into pharmacology and, and cell biology and all kinds of things. But just as an initial approach, what the only thing I was learning how to do was make series of, of molecules that were related in structure, find ways to test them and say, okay, what is, what is the relationship between the chemical structure and how they work? Were you yourself taking LSD at that time during graduate school? <laughs> no. No. Uh, Maybe I had made, would have made more discoveries if I had been. But um, now it was uh, basically it was really trying to figure out how to make these. Um, it was clear for a lot of these compounds that were called substituted amphetamines uh, that were related to mescaline. They had uh, optical isomers, so there were t sort of two forms, and nobody had found a good way to make those two forms. And as a graduate student, I, I found a way that we subsequently patented to make these. So I was really at the stage of making tools 
and, and finding molecules that other people could use in their models to do some of the assays. I really didn't do much in the way of biological assays until my postdoctoral work, and then when I came to Purdue, I did a lot more then. Yeah, let's move on to Purdue and the search for how LSD interacts with brain chemistry so that one dose of it can create a life change. That's what you're talking about, and that's what many of us know. Yeah, and, and I can't give you the answer to that uh, at this point. <laughs> but Still under investigation. Yes, and LSD is unique among all of these compounds. So you have mescaline, and there are a whole series of substituted uh, derivatives of sort of mescaline that we'll call substitute amphetamines that have names like DOB and DOI and 2CI and 2CB and so forth. None of them really have the profundity of effect that you see with LSD. And we've spent some time trying to figure out what it is that LSD does that makes it different from all of these others. We haven't really uh, discovered what it is. LSD interacts with a number of receptors, though, whereas if you look at something like mescaline or psilocybin, they really only interact you know, powerfully with a couple of brain receptors. LSD interacts with a dozen or so. So we think probably part of the secret is there. Um, but we've been doing studies looking at the actual receptor itself that these drugs bind to and mutating them, changing the amino acids and looking at how these drugs bind. And LSD has this one feature, this the diethyl amide, the, the D part of LSD. And it looks like it interacts with this uh, flap at the top of the receptor that folds over. And depending upon what those substituents are, so in LSD, it's a diethyl. You have these two ethyl groups. But we've made about 25 different derivatives where we've changed that into other things. And Sandoz made some of these as well, where we've made the diethyls into rings and, and big rings and small rings and all kinds of things. And when you make a change like that, the, the molecule invariably loses about 90% of its, its activity, in, at least in the models we use. So there's something going on with that uh, diethyl amide. And we think right now that the receptor folds over and interacts and that produces some kind of change in the receptor that we haven't quantified yet. Um, uh, it's a very complex problem, though. And the other thing that comes into play in trying to understand how these work is that all of the psychedelics interact or activate a type of serotonin receptor that's called the 2A receptor, the serotonin 5-HT2A receptor. Talk to our listeners a bit, Dave, about serotonin and what it is and why it's so important and why it gets so much press. And serotonin is a, a very ancient neurotransmitter. There are three kind of what we call uh, monoamine neurotransmitters in the brain. Dopamine is one, norepinephrine is another, and serotonin is the third. And all of these transmitters come from, uh, are produced by uh, neurons that come from cell groups of cell bodies that are at the top of the brain stem or in the lower midbrain, right at the point where the spinal cord really enters the brain. And there are areas there, the Rafe nuclei produce uh, neurons that uh, make serotonin, and they send these neurons to all parts of the brain. So it's a very ancient transmitter. Um, there are 15 different types of receptors known for serotonin, and that's way more than for dopamine or norepinephrine. So if you, if you build a, a, a sort of a, a phylogenetic tree, what you find out is that serotonin goes way back into evolutionary history, uh, it occurs in paramecium and simple insects. So it was a transmitter that was employed early on in evolution for a whole variety of things, uh, brain development and, and all kinds of systems development. 
And what we know in humans is that those serotonin uh, neurons project to virtually all parts of the cortex and higher forebrain, and they're involved in emotions, uh, anger, rage, hunger, sex drive, uh, cognition, um, depression, mood, uh, all kinds of things. So it's one of those critical sort of foundational neurotransmitters. So it's a, it's a major information transmitter is what you're saying. Well, it's Is a, that how the public, the listeners should listen, should be thinking about it when they hear about serotonin? It's, it's really a, a modulator of other systems. So dopamine, serotonin, and norepinephrine really are modulators. The, the real hard, the hard wiring in the brain that uses uh, fast transmitters, uh, those transmitters are called uh, glutamic acid, gamma aminobutyric acid, and to some extent acetylcholine. And that's, that's sort of the hard wiring, the fast transmission that occurs. And so serotonin and dopamine and norepinephrine, they will modulate those systems, regulate them up and down. So sort of the hard wiring is the glutamate, the GABA, and just ion transport. Um, and serotonin will modulate those systems, make them more reactive or less reactive um, in a sense. That's probably the best analogy I could give. The serotonin modulates the acetylcholine, the iron glutamate, and the others. It's it like, it like, can modulate all those systems depending mm -hmm. on what part of the brain they're in and can either return, turn them up or turn them down. In terms of transmitting more or less information. Increasing the activity or decreasing the activity in those different systems. Mm -hmm. And so what happens is the serotonin 2A receptor is a variation. Serotonin 2 receptors come in sort of three flavors, a 2A, 2B, and a 2C. They're all a similar family. And that serotonin 2 family is, one of the, is really the most ancient as far as I can tell. And so it's been built in all parts of the brain. And if you actually look at the areas of the brain that are involved in cognition, uh, higher uh, cortical processing, it turns out that the serotonin 2A receptor is, is heavily expressed in a lot of those areas. Um, it's also heavily expressed in the visual cortex, primary visual cortex, um, so that one of the things that happens with low doses of psychedelics is you see a lot of visual illusions. People say the walls are melting or the yes, yes. Or breathing, that sort of thing. You actually, and, and this has only been discovered within the last couple of years, you actually have a high expression density of these serotonin 2A receptors in primary visual cortex in the back area of the brain and visuaries. And so activation of those probably is what's responsible for, for producing these illusions and visual distortions. Are they illusions and visual distortions when one seems <clears throat> to see the, the desk breathing or the wall breathing or molecules moving and so on? Look like Dali paintings where, where pieces of the, of the room seem to be melting? Well, the first place that visual information goes from the eyes is primary visual cortex. And so it clearly is going to be corrupted at that level. But then it goes on and is processed in higher centers where you put it together and make sense out of it. And all of that architecture is affected. There are serotonin 2A receptors in an area called the thalamus. And the reticular nucleus of the thalamus, that's sort of a gateway center uh, in the center of the brain that decides what sensory information gets sent to the cortex for processing. So normally in everyday life, you're not attending to every possible thing that's going on in your body. The muscles that are maintaining your posture, the temperature in the room necessarily, a noise that's going on next door that you become accustomed to. Your brain shuts out the things that are not relevant yes. sensory information. Right. That happens in the thalamus and in the reticular nucleus of the thalamus. And so... There are serotonin 2A receptors there. Uh, there's an area in the brain that's uh, called the sort of searchlight of attention, the locus ceruleus, which is a novelty detector. 
So if something in your environment happens that's novel, somebody opens the door in your studio and slams it, you turn around and you hear that, that's your locus ruleus sort of burst firing and calling your attention to something that you need to pay attention to. And there are serotonin 2A receptors there. Uh, there are serotonin 2A receptors in the Rafe nuclei themselves, which are the cell bodies that send out these serotonin projections to all parts of the brain. And they also fire at different rates depending upon whether their serotonin 2A receptors are activated. So what you're saying here is not that the serotonin that the public hears so much about, particularly with the advent of uh, the SSRIs, you know, selective serotonin reuptake inhibitors, it's not that the serotonin is sending different messages or, or having a direct effect. It's that the serotonin, which is a modulator or a governor, is having an effect on these other neurotrans, on the transmitters themselves, acetylcholine, glutamate, iron, and so on. So it's your governor that's being, uh, being affected when a serotonin is affected. Is that correct? Well, yeah. So serotonin will modulate activity in a variety of brain areas. And depending upon the area... Uh, so you're, you're, you're affecting that with your normal serotonin levels in your brain and the way they fire. So when you take a psychedelic, they will actually activate one of the types of receptors for serotonin that's very important in uh, determining your level of awareness, your vigilance, your cognitive processing. Uh, these receptors are heavily expressed on neurons in the prefrontal cortex, which is the area where you make your executive decisions, where everything kind of comes together and you create a your own, your sort of your own reality, they affect that, they change the firing frequency of those cells. So every place in the brain that's involved in cognition and consciousness in a way is directly or indirectly affected when these serotonin 2A receptors are stimulated by psychedelics. And would you say that's the reason why one event with LSD can have such a life-changing effect? Because so much is being affected? Or how do you put together the size of the psychological effect with the psychopharmacological effect that you've been describing for us? Well, my, my opinion is that there's actually a sort of quantum change in consciousness when people have these life-changing events. So if you take a low dose of LSD, you watch the curtains weave, the walls breathe, maybe you close your eyes and watch you know, colored patterns go to the music... And so you have at lower doses the distortion of the sensory information that's coming in through, you know, your hearing and, and vision and touch and so forth. That's all being altered by this drug. But at a certain point in some people and at some doses and it's unpredictable in a lot of cases, all of that sort of disappears. All that external sensory that's in your environment disappears and you're projected into a novel environment of another place and time with, you know, may have... Uh, beings in it may not have beings. You may have a perception of uh, a creator or whatever. There's something different that happens there that no one has been able to trap that yet. One of the things that Roland uh, Griffiths did at Johns Hopkins was found, you know, that uh, something like 60% of the people who had this, what he called, mystical transcendental experience, this is, the, if, this is the thing that really changed them. And in all of the research with psychedelics, when they've seen a permanent powerful change, it's occurred following, in general, one of these intense mystical transcendental experiences, which is ineffable, indescribable. It's, people believe maybe in some cases that they've had a vision of, of paradise or they've spoken with God or Buddha or whatever. Yes. Nobody understands what happens there. Uh, and I think there's fundamentally a difference that occurs, some kind of a quantum state in the brain that changes, and no one understands exactly what that is, how it happens, or why it happens. 
but it's got to be related to the activation, I think, of these serotonin 2A receptors. And you're saying that event happens at higher doses. When you said a lower dose, you know, the curtains move and so on, what is a lower dose and what's a higher dose? Well, it's it's not necessarily dose-dependent. Ah. For, you know, the kinds of doses that are available on the street today, between 20 and, say, 50 or 60 micrograms, I think it would be rare to see that happen, although I would say under the right circumstances it it could. Um, but in the 60s when LSD was available on the street and you had uh, tablets containing between 150 and 350 or 400 micrograms of LSD, uh, those were very high doses that uh, I think for most people if they took a dose like that it would be very difficult to sort of maintain contact with the you know the environment that they were familiar with. But a high dose doesn't necessarily guarantee that's going to happen, and a low dose doesn't necessarily preclude that happening. I think set and setting are really important. That is what your expectation is and the environment that you're in when you take it. So I think it doesn't take a large dose if you were, if your mindset is that, you're, that this is going to happen, that this is something you have the expectation of, and you're sitting in a quiet chamber listening to you know, soft kind of Buddhist music or whatever and meditating on something, those things can happen pretty much unpredictably. And that's where the really interesting phenomena occur of, of this this dramatic change or transformation in consciousness. In what size dose would you say one would be best in terms of uh, of psychotherapeutic use? Or do we know that yet? Well, you know, it depends upon the kind of psychotherapy you're trying to do. There were there were two uh, kinds of therapy, psycholytic and psychedelic. And psycholytic therapy was really a kind of therapy where you would give a relatively low dose to the person and try to engage them uh, in recognizing what problems were and cognitive therapy and talk therapy, if you will. And then there was psychedelic therapy where you really didn't do much except prepare the patient beforehand and give them a very large overwhelming dose. Basically, if you prepared them correctly, the idea was that their own brain, their own mind would sort of realize what the problem was and, and come to a solution. A, a case that was really interesting was published, I think, back in the 70s, and it was an individual that developed severe obsessive-compulsive disorder. And this is a disease that's really difficult to treat. Becomes uh, A person becomes obsessed with the fear of contamination. Um, and this person's life really deteriorated to the point where he had to quit his job. In the morning, he'd get up. If he heard a toilet flush, he would have to wash his hands, you know, a dozen times mm-hmm. and use four rolls of toilet paper every time he went to the bathroom. It really became debilitated. And um, he was given LSD without any therapy at all, just put in the room and told to just think about whatever. And there was a there was a nurse in attendance, and the doctor said, at the end of the day, I'll come in. And uh, I think it was about once a month he got LSD, and at the end of, I think it was about a year, he had completely recovered his normal personality and got his job back and his friends and relatives said, you know, like his personality is better than ever. You know, he's never this good. How, you know, and so there wasn't really any therapy involved other than the LSD per se. And so psychedelic therapy and the sort of thing that uh, Roland Griffiths is trying to do or that Charlie Grobe did, sort of the goal there is to produce this transcendental mystical state where you get a different perspective on things. And nobody can explain how that happens. I use the analogy of rebooting a computer. You know, if you have Windows Vista, for example, uh, some of your listeners may have Vista and or, or any any kind of a product, but it gets to a certain point where you 
click a program and, and something doesn't happen and you think, oh, time to reboot the computer. And you reboot it and it comes up and then if you're lucky it works again. So I, I think that probably there are what I'll call behavioral subroutines that maybe are accumulated during life at various stages that start to control the way you feel and the way you think and so forth. And we're not aware of them because they're rum, running in a sort of subliminal way. And when this, whatever this psychedelic effect is, it, it somehow reboots this and, and, and inactivates some of these dysfunctional behaviors. That's and a, I'm just speculating. I'm not yeah, a therapist, but it's I an think interesting way. Very interesting way of looking at it. You're listening to, uh, to Dr. Dave Nichols. He's uh, recognized by most scientists as one of the world's foremost authorities on the chemistry and pharmacology of psychedelics. If you have a, a, a call or a question uh, for uh, Dave Nichols, uh, please uh, call in now, 707-937-5103. 707-937-5103. I'm sure I'll be happy to answer your questions. Uh, you know, you mentioned, uh, you know, Roland and uh, uh, Griffiths and, and Charlie Grove's work with, uh, with psilocybin. Is, uh, is the chemical activity of psilocybin similar uh, on the brain to the uh, chemical activity of LSD? Yes. Um, it activates serotonin 2A receptors, which we think that's the, the key event that has to happen. Psilocybin is, I would characterize it as more benign than LSD. It doesn't last as long. Um, I don't think it has, if we could use the word, psychological power if you compare a heavyweight boxer with uh, a lightweight boxer. Interesting way to put it. Let, we have a caller here, Dave. Let's take it. Uh, welcome to Mind, Body, Health, and Politics. You're on the air. Hi. Yeah, very interesting conversation. Um, I, have, I have one question. I had a friend when I was growing up, and his older brother um, was doing a lot of experimentation at, with LSD, and he finally got to a point where he didn't really come back. He uh, never really got full control. You know, he was definitely changed, and it affected his, his mind and his thinking, and uh, uh, it was, you know, definitely a long-term. It's, it's, that was 40, 45 years ago, and, and uh, he, never, he never recovered from that. I was wondering if you could address uh, the long-term issues of... of that type of experimentation. Yeah, just one question before uh, Dave answers that. When you say he didn't come back, does that mean was has he been able to function in our world, or has he been out of functional activity? Or no, yeah, he had to, finally he had to be put into a uh, you know a, sort of a hospice care at a young age. I mean, he was twenty. Okay, that's what I wanted to know. Yeah. Okay, thank you very much, Dave. Thank what you. Do you? Great show. Thanks. So um, the consensus of the people who know generally is that these drugs, LSD, for example, or psilocybin, will not produce uh, mental illness in someone who is balanced and stable to begin with, but that they can catalyze the onset of an illness in someone who is predisposed. And what happens is schizophrenia, I think about 1% of people suffer from schizophrenia. Schizophrenia, as you may know, uh, is his people in late adolescence and early adulthood most commonly. Yes. And this is the same period of time when a lot of people will experiment with these drugs, just out of curiosity. So they go off to college, and, uh, you know, the doctor calls home and says, you know, you better come and pick him up. And he or she, you know, we think diagnosed with schizophrenia. And what happened? What happened? Well, you know, he was using LSD, and, and so the immediate connection is there. Most people don't think that LSD can do that, but... Uh, in people who are predisposed or labile to schizophrenia, it can catalyze the onset. So there's a parent connection. 
But uh, most of the investigators who have looked at this, people who have used LSD and then been diagnosed with various sorts of affective disorders, have generally concluded that it doesn't produce those disorders, but it will catalyze the onset. And so there's the obvious connection when a distraught parent is thinking, what happened, what happened? I just don't understand. He was doing so well, and we had such great hopes, and now his life has been destroyed by this illness, and probably, well, it must have been the drugs. And so there's that immediate knee-jerk connection. And, uh, you know, if I was a parent, I might, you know, you'd be tempted to think the same thing. But generally, that the belief is that it won't do that uh, in well-balanced people. But now I've gone to some conferences that are held uh, sort of by the counterculture to uh, talk about these drugs and sort of propagandize them, et cetera. And I have to tell you, a lot of times I go to these and I look at some of the people who you know are using these, and I, I think to myself, these are the wrong people to be using these. And so I think they do attract a certain, in addition to normal people, I think they attract a sort of anti-authoritarian um, person who is looking to rebel and is, tr is looking to find ways to rebel and, you know, throw it in your face and uh, to show his parents that, that, that he or she can't be controlled. And is in. And so I think these drugs are attractive to some people like that who, who probably are not well balanced to begin with. And so I think you do see a lot of that. But for the majority of people who experiment a couple of times with these, um, they, they try them, nothing bad happens, and, and they're sort of finished with them. Psychedelics are not taken typically on a chronic long-term basis like something like uh, cocaine or, or methamphetamine or, or even ecstasy would be. But typically, the pattern of use is episodic. There's some interest. There's some experimentation. They take it a couple of times. They say, okay, now I know what it is, and, and, and for most people, never go back to it again. So I, I hear the stories a lot about people who took LSD and you know had to be committed and never were the same. They, they do exist, but... Um, from what I understand from the literature, that those are people who probably would have, under a period of stress at some point in their life, would have had the same illness, onset of illness, but that the LSD just catalyzed its yeah. onset a bit faster. Thank you. We're going to take another call here. Put them on, Michael. Welcome to Mind, Body, Health, and Politics. You're on the air. Hi there. Hi there. My name is Kelly, and I've had quite a bit of experience with um, LSD throughout the years. Um, to touch on what you guys were just discussing, though, sometimes things aren't made with the purest of ingredients or in the most um, healthy of environments, and I think that that can play a really big part in, in people not coming back as them getting poisoned from something that wasn't made correctly. But I wanted to t ask you, because you seem to be pretty experienced in it, I had viral spinal meningitis when I was 19, and I was in a coma for 10 days because the circulation to my brain was cut off to the point to where I went into this coma and came out of it eventually, thank God. And um, I seem to have a serotonin imbalance that I've had trouble um, fixing um, no matter what I've done, no matter how many herbs or psychotropics I've taken or what I've done, it just it seems to be off. And I'm wondering if you think that medicinal-guided um, LSD might be one of the things that could um, bring that serotonin back to balance. Good. Be before uh, uh, Dave answers that question, I'd like to ask you a question. What, what is it that leads you to believe that your serotonin particularly is out of balance? Um, what leads me to believe that is because when I get into areas that have high magnetic watts, um, positive ions 
to negative ion ratio, like fluorescent lights, refrigerators, um, transmitter pole, transformer poles, it will alter, it'll alter my presence. It'll alter my um, state of mind a little bit. Not so much that it's like, oh, I'm out, I'm naked in the streets, you know, but I have to be aware of the um, electric field and the uh, magnetic fields that I'm walking into. Whereas when what, I'm up what about, my, what about cell phones? Do they affect you? Sometimes, sometimes. Okay. I refuse to get a Bluetooth. Um, okay, let's uh, let's see what uh, Professor Nichols has to say about your question, and thank you very much for uh, for calling and asking. Okay, thank you. You're welcome. Well, so let me briefly address the first comment you made about the purity of uh, street drugs, and that's obviously a, a big concern. One of the things about LSD that distinguishes it from other drugs is that because of its high potency, it can be distributed on very small dosage forms, so little pieces of blotter paper. <clears throat> And so when people have said, well, like, how could you tell how pure a drug was? If it's in a tablet or capsule, you have no idea. It could be anything. But if it's in a little tiny paper blotter, blotter the chances are very good. It's probably LSD, and it's difficult to get any kind of uh, contaminants on there that would really have much of an effect. Now, with respect to your broader question, uh, if you were in a coma, um, I think depending on you know what parts of the brain were affected, you could have lots of things going on there, and I wouldn't think that it would necessarily be related to serotonin. Some of the effects you described sound almost like a pro-convulsant, uh, almost like uh, someone with epilepsy would experience, and that would be related to a, a transmitter system either in GABA or glutamate that would be completely different. So um, I don't know that you could conclude that serotonin is really the principal or even the, the player that's involved there at all. Um, not being a physician, I certainly couldn't recommend you to try, you know, guided doses of, of LSD, but I don't know that there's anything that you've described that would suggest that, um, that use of LSD would restore um, that condition your, your prior to when you had the coma. Thank you. That's a great answer. Let's take the next question here. Thank you, Michael. What happened there? We lose him? Okay. I think we lost that caller, and so um, I wanted to come back to ask you um, what's what's going on presently uh, in your research. What's the uh, what's hot and uh, what's hot and heavy on your on your research? Well, we uh, we have a couple of things. I mean, we're spending a lot of time trying to understand how LSD is different, and a lot of that involves uh, studies where we actually have the human serotonin 2A receptor that we've expressed in cell lines. And we create mutations in that in different amino acid residues and are looking at the effects on uh, different derivatives in, when they bind and activate that receptor, trying to look at the underlying uh, biochemistry that occurs when these drugs interact. Um, another thing that we've done is all of the psychedelics or hallucinogens activate two kinds of receptors. I've talked about the serotonin 2A receptor, but there's also a closely related receptor that's called the serotonin 2C receptor. And all of the psychedelics activate the 2A and the 2C receptors about equally. And in some cases, they're more effective at the 2C receptor even than at the 2A receptor. And <clears throat> the interesting thing is that activation of the 2A receptor and the 2C receptor produce opposite effects in brain chemistry. So activation of the 2A receptor will enhance the formation and release of dopamine activation of the serotonin 2C receptor will suppress formation and release of dopamine. 
So if you look at these two receptors in various parts of the brain, they actually oppose each other. And all the studies have suggested that the, the key thing that a psychedelic does is activate the serotonin 2A receptor and just sort of ignore what goes on at the 2C receptor because it doesn't seem to be a player. But it's basically fighting against activation of the 2A receptor. So any of these substances that someone would take, the effect is, a, is sort of a mixture of this activation of the 2A receptor and the activation of the 2C receptor, which is, in a sense, fighting against the 2A receptor activation. So for a long time, I've wanted to try to find a way to develop a drug that would be specific and only activate the 2A receptor without activating the 2C receptor. To increase the dopamine, and that's the connection with, well, you, with your Parkinson's research, I imagine, huh? It's really, uh, it, it goes beyond that. I mean, there are a whole host of functions where the two receptors just antagonize each other. Mm -hmm. So dopamine, that's one effect, but there are lots of others. And nobody's been able to do it. Well, we recently kind of stumbled on a way to actually do that. And so uh, we're making now... Uh, some compounds that are selective serotonin 2A receptors just to make them as tools for people to use to see, okay, now you've got a drug that only activates the serotonin 2A receptor. So that's something that we've been working on. And then um, I've spent a lot of time with the Hefter Institute, although I'm not a clinician, uh, working and dialoguing and, and trying to keep that going, doing fundraising and uh, getting investigators interested in doing clinical research. And so I spent some time doing that. Yeah. The Parkinson's research, um, you know, we discovered dopamine D1 agonist showed proof of principle in 1991 that these probably are as good as any drug out there for Parkinson's and probably better than what's out there now. And I've got a video of a monkey that's a model of an end-stage Parkinson patient where no anti-Parkinson drug works at all. And we gave him this drug that I uh, developed here in the College of Pharmacy, and the monkey stands up and takes a bite of banana, and it's it's really amazing. But we have never been able to convince people to develop these further as drugs because there's no dopamine D1 agonist on the market. We started, I co-founded a company with a colleague of mine at North Carolina uh, in 2000, and we spent five years trying to convince people to invest in that technology, showed in the video, and they go, wow, that's really impressive, but well, you know, it's not our cup of tea, and walked away. And uh, so... Um, Mm. That's been frustrating. Yeah. Can listeners see that video? Uh, I've been told to put it on YouTube. I haven't yeah, that would be great really if thought you did. about that. I yep. think uh, it would probably go viral. If yeah, I, I think that would be wonderful. I encourage you to do that. We're going to take another call here, Dave. Put him on, Michael. Hi, welcome to Mind, Body, Health, and Politics. You're on the air. Well, I hope oh. you're on the air. Are you oh. there? Hello? Yes, are you there? Yeah. Uh, can you hear me? Yes, we sure can. Okay. Uh, yeah, I've got to, uh, <clears throat> let's see, one question, and uh, first I want to make a statement. Well, make it I, fast, because we're I, running out of time. Don't mean to okay, be rude I keep here. I hearing but, uh, you say that uh, uh, LSD, uh, some people can take it one time, and it makes a difference for the rest of their life, and uh, they can make very important changes, and uh, everything goes fine. Yes, I, I can substantiate that. That did happen with me. Uh, many years ago, and there was an, an ex I made these extreme changes, and uh, it was certainly for the for the good. The question is, what is the success? That is the uh, track record so far of uh, treating, um, say, schizophrenics with uh, LSD. Thank you. You're welcome. I 
Could you uh, state his question again? It was yeah, a little bit yeah. fuzzy on my end. He, he what, what, the, what he said was that he did have a positive life-changing right. event from one uh, experience with LSD, and he's asking what the experience is with uh, treating uh, schizophrenics, if we have any research on that. Um, <clears throat> the only uh, published work that I know was done by Stan Groff, and uh, he was a Czechoslovakian researcher that came to the United States, and he treated schizophrenics with large doses of LSD. And he wrote a couple books, uh, Realms of the Human Unconscious and LSD Psychotherapy, which are both out there, uh, very good books. And he claims that uh, after these large dose treatments with LSD that these people were medication-free. Um, those studies have not been replicated. Uh, he's He's fairly well respected, but the idea that schizophrenics could be given large doses of LSD and, and recover is something that never really caught on in the mainstream psychiatry. Uh, it would really be interesting to see if that's true. Uh, he was criticized when he would talk about this because he would say, well, after I treat these people, they develop an interest in Eastern philosophy and re Eastern religions, and the people in the audience would say, well, you've just made them sicker. You know, everyone knows that schizophrenics become preoccupied with religious thought and so forth and so on. So he was basically ostracized uh, from mainstream medicine uh, as a result of some of the things he said with respect to LSD. But we don't really know what causes schizophrenia. We don't know what the primary lesion is. The treatments are just symptomatic. They don't work that well. It's a progressive disease. And, you know, it's certainly possible that large doses of LSD could restore some kind of a neurochemical balance. The brain is a dynamic biochemical machine that sets up all kinds of feedback loops. And it may be that, you know, this rebooting or whatever, uh, that, you could dis that you could disrupt some of those feedback loops. And maybe you could, but we're a long way off before we get to a point where those studies would ever be attempted. Right now, we're basically just trying to treat people with PTSD or with uh, depression and anxiety or, or now just a new study now to, to, to look at alcohol, alcoholism in a, a, small, uh, a small study uh, just to try to get this going. We really don't, there's no money for this. I mean, the Hefter Institute de depends upon private donations and uh, we have enough to sort of scrape by, but we don't, you know, nobody has the money to really do large scale trials like we'd like to see and really to test these ideas. Thank you, Dave. We're going to have to conclude our interview. I want to thank you very much for the privilege of having you on the program today and just sort of scratching the surface on, uh, on your research in psychedelic medicine. So uh, thank you very much for being here. Um, we're going to be continue with this series. We've got uh, Charlie Grobe.